On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Well, anyway, let's jump in. So today we are thrilled to be joined with number one New York Times bestselling author, Susan Wiggs. Her first book was published in 1987, averaging two books a year. She has now published almost 60 novels. Oh my God, that makes me feel old. (laughs) Oh, it's prolific and, and aspirational to me, but... Your website bio is one of the most fun ones we've ever read. Susan Wiggs' life is all about family, friends, and fiction. She lives at the water's edge on an island in Puget Sound, and in good weather, she commutes to her writer's group in a 21-foot motorboat. The author is a former teacher, a Harvard graduate, and an avid hiker, an amateur photographer, a good skier, a terrible golfer, yet her favorite form of exercise is curling up with a good book. Susan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is delightful. I love connecting with people about books, family, fiction, so I'm excited to be here. And we are excited to have you. So your love for curling up with a good book is clearly evident in your new novel, The Lost and Found Bookshop. I really loved this book. It has such warmth and heart. And as a lifelong reader and lover of bookstores, the premise of the story immediately drew me in. But it's really about so much more than that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your new novel? The Lost and Found Bookshop was a title in search of a book actually and also oh. a fantasy and we're in search of a story i always like probably a lot of readers and and authors that i know fantasized about having my own bookstore because when you love something as much as we love books um yes. you know the next best thing to you know loving a book on your own is sharing it with somebody especially somebody who's going to um appreciate that book on the level that you know we do. and and a bookseller a good bookseller can read the readers what do they love what's going to transport them what's going to carry them away and so i had always fantasized about that and i had this image in mind of all the beautiful bookstores that I've known all over the world throughout my life. The ones with the creaky old wood floors and the ladders that go up to the ceiling. And then the ones with the tables just littered with yummy new books and, you know, the coffee corner. I had it, you know, just perfectly set in my mind. And so even before I put one word on paper, I had this very idealized bookstore in mind. But you know, it, since it's a novel full of conflict and challenges and a journey for the character, her name's Natalie Harper, in honor of my mm-hmm. publisher, HarperCollins. Um, ah, yeah. nice. <laughs> and so I wanted to create, I wanted to build her world around this bookstore, but it wasn't so ideal. You know, it had a lot of problems and she has a lot of problems in her life. And the renovation of the bookstore and the discoveries that she makes there kind of parallel 
her journey through this really turbulent time in her life. You know, what is she supposed to be doing with her life? Where did she go wrong? She needs to pick up the reins where her mother left off and carry on this family enterprise that's been around for generations. And I was really transported by that. And then having the book come out in this time of pandemic and closures and having to isolate has been a real unique situation, not just for me, but for all authors and publishers, because it was, um, we're finding ways to, to get the book into readers' hands and reviewers' hands in advance in a way that um, has never happened before in my career, probably in anybody else's. And mm-hmm. one of the things the publisher did that really, I think, gave me a boost is they produced an early edition of the book and sent it out to booksellers, independent booksellers. And their feedback has been remarkable. You know, many of them said, you know, I grabbed this book off the to be read pile on my way out the door and we had to close for three months or something like that. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, and, and mm-hmm. they're their dialogue back to us about the book has been amazing. And so I'm I'm so excited that it's out. I'm so disappointed. I don't get to go out, but we're being safe. You know, we're trying to conquer this, this um, contagion and hopefully staying home with a good book will help that process. Yes. And what a gift to them too, to remind them, you know, that when this is all said and done, how important their work is. They are. They are. I hope that everybody listening has a community bookstore, and I know they don't. And Mm -hmm. so there are lots of ways to try to support local bookstores. And that's one of the things that I've learned through the pandemic is all the different creative ways that I've seen booksellers regroup and try to do curbside and delivery and and Zoom meetings and things like that just to bring books and readers and book groups together. Yes, yes. I think that it has forced them to reimagine their business in ways that are just working for them and and for us. I'm glad you said reimagine because one of the things that a fiercely independent bookstore has to have is that creative can-do attitude and the ability to pivot. And one one thing that that reminds me of is I had planned a book publicity tour around this book in July. And the idea was I was going to start at a really big, well-established independent bookstore in California of Romans. I don't know if you're yeah, familiar sure. with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And work my way up the coast. It was, um, we were even thinking it might be a driving trip where I would do the first week or two of the book's re- release. I would stop at independent bookstores, uh, you know, going up the West Coast yeah, and, yeah. and end in a newly acquired bookstore in my area called Liberty Bay Books in Paulsville, Washington. And it was a, it was really important to me because the bookstore has been around for a while, but the previous owner retired and mm. the new owner is a writer friend of mine. Her name is Suzanne Selfers. She's a very established, very popular award-winning children's book author. And she also bought Liberty Bay books and she opened her doors February 1st. Oh, and so, I know, oh. I know the, of all the <laughs> rotten timing, but I wanted to end my, my publicity tour there with a big, extravaganza in her shop so we'll still do something it will be virtual right 
it will be something called a Mighty Blaze, which is another platform that that helps independent bookstores and authors. But yeah, okay. so and talk about having to pivot. A quick pivot. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. Wow. Yes. Well, let's talk about Natalie Harper. On this podcast, we love content that starts with a woman on the brink of a major crossroads, mm-hmm. like Natalie is facing. From the outset of the story, she's reeling from tragedy, forced to deal with her mother's failing bookshop and her aging grandfather. She's questioning the choices she has made in the name of being comfortable and safe and what she is willing to risk to find her own happiness. Natalie has deliberately chosen stability, but at what price? You write, finger combing her hair, her dark curly hair, which is possibly the most unruly thing about her. She -hmm. thought about her clean, paid-for hybrid car, her tidy home, her secure little life, and the tiniest voice inside her whispered, the emptiness. And, (laughs) And then Natalie stumbles across a book by the poet Mary Oliver that really makes her think, listen, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? I think this is so relevant now as people come out of the great pause caused by the pandemic and quarantine and start asking themselves, what's really important in life? So why did you want to explore this tension between the safe paths we choose versus the risks we may have to take to facilitate real change? I'm always fascinated by people who are who question the choices that they make. And I think that most of us tend to get into a lane and that's our comfort zone. And it, it takes a lot to sort of nudge us out of that lane. You know, if you're Luke Skywalker, it takes, you know, your family getting, you know, destroyed in the very first scene. Or if you're Dorothy, it takes a a tornado whipping through your life. And so the metaphorical tornado through Natalie's life, she has, as you described, she's, she's created this life. She's in her thirties and she's on a path and she's always been a seeker of stability because she regards growing up in the little Garrett apartment up above a, a independent bookstore as this really kind of chaotic, uncertain childhood. She never had a, a dad present in her life, um, had a single mom, and it just felt really chaotic. So she's spent her life in search of the opposite of that mm-hmm. and thinks that she's found it and appears to be content with it. But there are signs right from the start that it's not the right choice for her. So Instead of just having her wake up one morning and go, well, this kind of sucks right. <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's fiction and we need drama. Um, yeah. This huge dramatic tragedy befalls her and overnight in an instant, she, you know, she has to change everything about her life in order to embrace this new journey. That, and I always like the idea of the reluctant hero. The one who says, you know, I don't really want to go there, but I have to, because I think it makes you even more heroic and admirable if you do something that um, is way out of your comfort zone. And Mm -hmm. what she finds is the rewards of following her heart instead of her head are things that she never imagined. And I tried to track that, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of um, this old, old 80s movie called Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. Sigourney Weaver was the horrible boss. And I think, was it Harrison Ford? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that was pointed out to me by a a screenwriter, Michael Haig, he said one thing that, that really worked about that, that movie is that the characters, the way that she dressed and the way that she carried herself reflected what was happening in her life. So in the very opening scene when she's this underpaid, underappreciated secretary and people are making her fetch their coffee and things like that, she's wearing uncomfortable shoes and she's got the big hair and the shoulder pads and, Mm -hmm. you know, this tight outfit and it just doesn't fit in any way. And there are a couple of points through the movie where you see her evolving into, you know, more corporate looking and then more relaxed looking. And by the end, she's actually living in her true self. And I thought, mm. you know, that that I could I could apply that and not just to Natalie, but to any woman. But I kind of made an effort to contrast Natalie with her mother, the way that they carry themselves and the way they dress. And so when we first meet Natalie, she's very uncomfortable in her own skin. She doesn't know it. She doesn't know why, you know, the the blouse isn't right and something spilled on it. And, you know, she overhears people trash talking her in the bathroom. And it was like such a mean girl situation. And then we get to the very end and she basically looks like all of us in the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And and so I did. I, I had her try on different personas and different ways of of living her life until she gets to the right one and so that was a conscious choice that I made to show the evolution of somebody who is living at first in their identity what they think they should look like and in the end in their very essence that the life that they were meant to have I love that and I love that her big change involves coming home So the Lost and Found Bookshop explores that theme of coming home, which you've explored in in other novels. Interestingly, Kate actually lives in her hometown and is raising her family there. And because of the pandemic, I'm currently living in the small town I grew up in as well. (laughs) So we both know something about coming home and not always having it be your idea. (laughs) Here, Natalie is not only coming home to the city and the bookstore she was raised in, but to herself and the person she once was. There have been times in my life when coming home felt very small and stifling, like I wasn't allowed to grow beyond the person I was when I was here younger. And then there have been times, like right now, actually, when the future feels so uncertain that there's so much comfort being wrapped in a secure past. But tell us what interests you about this theme and why it's something you keep coming back to. You know, there's a there's a book that I love to recommend, not just to writers, but to readers as well, called On Writing by Stephen King. And it's it's part memoir and part writing manual. And the memoir part really resonates with me um, because there's so much that writers and storytellers have in common. And but one of the things that he said, and I, I'm paraphrasing because I, I don't remember exactly, but he said most writers really only ever deal with three or four themes in every book. It just Mm. manifests itself differently. And so for some reason, I'm very drawn to exactly what you described. And you did such a good job saying the push pull of home. It's never, everything is different when you come back and yet there's familiarity too, that feels safe to you and, and comforting on the other hand, there are expectations that weren't met or that were exceeded or um, people who violated what was expected of them. And so I love the 
intimacy of that. And I love the conflict that that brings about in a person's life. And in book after book, if I dig down, and I'm never quite conscious of it as I'm writing it, I dig down and I find these common themes. And one of them definitely is coming home to a place that was familiar that you thought you'd left behind and then you find yourself back there again. And so that one is a recurrent theme with me. And I, I'm not sure why. One one thing that did happen to me in my life is when I was about 10 years old, my family moved from a small town in upstate New York where I have very nostalgic memories because I was little, you know, and yeah, that was my, sure. my home. We moved overseas and we lived all over the world. And so we were mm-hmm. kind of peripatetic. We lived in Brussels mm-hmm. and we lived in Paris and I went to school in Switzerland and London, you know, there were all these different places and we never had a, other than that little place in upstate New York, there was never this place where our family was parked that was home. And yeah. so possibly this was, this is my, um, my searching, you know, for yeah. what like to go home again and, and relive that world, which can never be, the way you remember it. And so I really loved doing this with Natalie. The problem was the home that she left was a historic district in San Francisco, which is awesome. It's like, yes. who, who wouldn't exactly. want to go there? Like, what's wrong so with the, that? Yeah. So the only thing I could think of to do is to find one place that is like one step more awesome that she had to leave in order to come home. And so that was Archangel, California in Sonoma yeah. County, which is my made up town from a couple of other books that I had written mm-hmm. previously. And so that town was very vivid in my mind. It's in wine country. It mm. is patterned after a town I hope everybody gets to go visit called Healdsburg. Oh, I love Sonoma. it there. Yeah, 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 the Santa Rosa Airport, just go. Mm-hmm. That's, all I, that's all I can say. It's amazing. So yeah, that's where she was, but she had a really shitty job there. And she worked in the wine industry, but it was in digital inventory management. And it was very stable and and the money was good and everything was good about it from that regard, but it was soul killing. And she never really admitted that. And then finally, when she gets vaulted out of that world and into this uncertain but very yummy San Francisco historic building, um, suddenly you know, she was lost and now she's finding. So lots of metaphors around my title, I guess. Yeah. You know what I love about the, the idea of coming home in this way is home. It's usually always the same. It doesn't change. What changes is you and either you feel like you're stifled. And so that reflects is is reflected back at you, or maybe you feel you need security. And so that's reflected back at you, but the place rarely changes. It's really just what the person brings to it and what they need from it. That, that there's so much to, to dig into there. It's yeah. Great. And I love that you said Archangel is based on Healdsburg because when I was reading, that's what I was picturing. Healdsburg, we have a very good friend that lives there. So I've been there a couple of times. So, so I oh, love the town that square and the sun drenched yeah. cafes and yes. all that. Yeah. Let's go there now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Oh. Um, yes. So you're talking to two lifelong readers. Uh, When I was younger, I used to keep a notebook of quotes I loved from books. And one of my favorites was from C.S. Lewis. uh, And it was, we read to know we're not alone. And your novel celebrates the power of books to lead us on adventures and reinforces that there is a book for everything. Um, And you have so many quotes from or mentions of beloved authors and books in your new novel. Mary Oliver, To Kill a Mockingbird, Charlotte's Web... 
the once and future king, the little prince, and my personal favorite, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, so tell us about how books have kept you company in life and if there is one true favorite you return to and why. When I when I wrote the line, there is a book for everything, I, I think it came out of a character's mouth. And mm-hmm. it's that no matter what is happening in your life, there is a book out there somewhere, nonfiction, fiction, self-help, children's, adult, whatever, that reflects back at you what you need at the time. And I'm convinced mm-hmm. that we can all read the same book, but reading is such a creative activity that everybody reads a different book. You read it from your uh-huh. point of view. I read it from my point of view. And so, But you're right. There are books that I can specifically remember that are guideposts for me along the way. Every single one that I mentioned in the book, other than the made up ones, I had to make up a couple of them because I didn't want to you know, like tag anybody or, or misrepresent somebody. But the the classics that I mentioned are all part of my blood and bone as a reader. They're the ones when I was little, and I bet you did this. If I, there was a book that I just adored, I would like sleep with it under my pillow. Oh, and, under my pillow. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and reflect back <laughs> yes. on it. And, and, you know, I remember getting to the end of Diary of Anne Frank and just like wiping the tears away and going all the way back to the beginning mm-hmm. and reading it through again. And so there are books that, become part of you as a reader and as a person. And if you're a writer, they become part of you as a writer. And Charlotte's Web is one that I was given, I was an early reader. A lot of writers, you know, probably were. And so I was reading ahead of my third grade class and it was given to me by my third grade teacher. And she said, I think you'll like this book, you know, and they were still, you know, reading more um, the primers, the, the, learn to read books. And I just remember just being amazed by that book, the illustrations and everything about it, not just the way that it was written, but the way it was made. And I became very obsessed. And I indeed wrote my first novel when I was in third grade. And I still have it. It's all stapled together. (laughs) It's called a book about bad kids. Because I'm the oh. <laughs> I'm the middle of three kids. Yeah, I know. I'm the middle oh. of three kids, and so what else am I going to write about? But yes, and my love of books is also I, I'm so lucky to be in publishing for so long because I've made a lot of friends along the way, and so my love of books also gave me the chance to give a shout out to writer friends and writers that yeah. I've I've met and admired through the year. There's a scene where they go to a literary cocktail bar called the library bar and the cocktails are named after San Francisco writers, you know, the Anne Rice blood orange cocktail and, and uh, the Christopher Moore practical demon. And that was really oh, fun. fun. Those are all yeah, writers that so I, I either know and love or don't know, but love their writing. And so it was really cool to be able to um, give them a shout out in an organic way in the book. And so right. That was really fun. And in fact, on the day that the Lost and Found Bookshop comes out, my friend Gail Sukiyama, a Bay Area writer, has her book is out the same day. And so I actually had this fantasy before the pandemic that we somehow meet up somewhere in the Bay Area and do some sort of book event together. And her book is called The Color of Water. Um, by Gail Sukiyama. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I've read all of her other books and she's wonderful. She's a genius. And so, yeah, shout out to Gail and her, her book is in my book. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, so is um, 
Love and Trouble by Claire Dieterer. Oh. Um, she's an island writer. Um, I love that book. Oh, good. Oh, okay. Well, and I love that in the Lost and Found Bookshop, people come into bookstores. You've probably experienced this as a reader. Um, they come in and they say, I'm looking for a book and it's got this as the theme or it had a blue cover or something like that. And the right bookseller will leave no stone unturned until she finds it. And there's a, there's a scene where Natalie is desperate to find this, this very vaguely described book for a customer and the workman who's kind of plastering a wall and, and, and eavesdropping sort of pushes the right book towards her because yeah. he knows exactly what the, the woman yeah. is looking for. And it's Love and Trouble by Claire Dieterer. Love that. Love <laughs> yeah, that. Peach came through in that moment. He did. Uh-huh. He did. I know. And the, <laughs> Peach is, is like a beloved character of mine. And he just kind of materialized. I, I tried to make it a very not a conflict-ridden um, relationship, but a relationship that grew on many levels. You know, when somebody, mm. if you've ever renovated a space or a home or something like that, whoever's working on your house or your building mm. kind of becomes a fixture there while the work is going on. And so that yeah. was, yeah, that was Peach's role initially. But I, I, as I wrote about him, I thought, he's he's cool. He's yeah. yeah. Cool. Ponytail. He's got a tool belt. So yeah, yeah. and that's a perfect segue, actually, because I'd (laughs) like to talk about love. Um, So you quote another one of my favorites, The Little Prince. Um, It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And Natalie has been in relationships with men who looked good on paper who she was, quote unquote, compatible with, but ones she could avoid having to be vulnerable with. And Natalie wants to steer clear, it seems, of the powerful, unpredictable feelings that come with when you truly open your heart and let someone in. Do you think people do this in life as a defense mechanism? And why did you want to explore that? That's exactly right. A defense mechanism because... We all are fearful of exposing our, our raw, unfiltered feelings. And so we stay in our, our lane of comfort, even if it's not 100% fulfilling, it feels like it's proper and things are as it should be. And that was what she always sought out. And when somebody inspires something that's like really turbulent and, and, um, and makes you feel very unsteady and, you know, like the rug's been pulled out from under you, you kind of cling to the familiar. And so I really wanted to delve into that with Natalie. It seemed very consistent with a character who was avoiding risk at all cost. Um, she didn't want to take a risk with her finances and with her, health and with her, you know, every part of her life. And so that sort of transmuted into her fear of exposing her heart for fear of having it shattered. I mean, there's nothing, you know, as painful as a as a really horrible romantic heartbreak or a failure of a relationship in some way. And so in order to avoid it, you just don't get yourself entangled in it in the first place. And so there came a moment in the book and there's a a couple of different love interest options. And so I, there came a moment, you know, what's she going to choose? Is she going to choose, you know, stability and predictability or is she going to, you know, fling herself over the edge? And there's not a lot of 
suspense about that because I think, you know, smart readers are going to read, uh, you know, look at both options and go, oh, we know. <laughs> Even though. It's still good. It, you, mm-hmm. you still want to read and, and find out even if you think you know. Yes, yes. I did hear back from a bookseller who read it, and she said, oh, thank gosh. Yeah. I had to get all the way up to page 275 before you explained what was going on, and I just yeah. couldn't stop reading because I had to know. <laughs> Implicit in our tagline is pop fiction women were complicated, mm-hmm. and it's the idea that the world has a hard time with complicated women, which is why we're constantly trying to seek them out and unpack them, show that there are so many different varieties. So we really love the exchange in your novel when Peach says to Susie, I don't do so hot with complicated women. And she says, or as most people call them, women. Yeah, yeah. Show me one who's not. Yes. And then he adds that his daughter was yet another complicated female, one he adored with every bit of his heart. Why do you think people have a hard time with women who have opinions or contradictions whom the world would call complicated and we just call human. Yeah, yeah, you know, thank you for asking that. And why does it apply to women more so than it does to males? I, I think um, because people's expectations, do we, is it because even now we expect the woman to be the one who smooths things over yes. and makes life run smoothly? And, and And I actually like that role in my life. I like helping my family and being a catalyst for and an organizer and things like that. But on the other hand, I think that we have the right to explore our complexities yeah. and we have the right to a partner who is happy enough to, to buy into that and to join us on this journey instead of having us, you know, tag along with them. And yeah. so it, it was um, it was something that I struggled with how to portray that because I didn't want her to seem weak or secondary to it. I didn't want her to have to compromise herself um, in any way for any relationship, even though a good relationship is a series of, of you know, trade-offs and complications, yeah. you know, but I really hoped that I showed somebody who grew into herself and got to know herself better. Because when I was in my 30s, long ago, I feel like I didn't know myself. I I hadn't done enough exploring of myself. And I really wanted to show somebody moving from that place to where they really felt grounded and, and happy with themselves. I had a book recommended to me, I haven't read it yet, called Magnificent Sex. And it's actually a a self-help book, but it doesn't sound quite like any other sex manual because instead of, you know, looking for the right partner, the whole idea of the book is to get right with yourself. Yes. And only then can you, you know, take the step towards the magnificent sex. So something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. To check that out. That is this role I'm familiar with and comfortable with too, being the kind of peacemaker or, but having it be a choice matters. It it shouldn't just be an expectation that's placed on every woman. Like you're the woman, this is what you do. And Mm -hmm. having it be a choice to say, okay, I I can be comfortable in this role. And Mm -hmm. maybe that is my role is a big deal. And also if it's my role 90% of the time, I need 10% of just like (laughs) 
creating havoc okay <laughs> somebody else fix it for me yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. i know we still do that it's 2020 mm -hmm. and there are still gender-defined roles even when we know it's happening and so maybe it's the next step for us to have to find ways for that not to be the case for us yes. to choose and say you know what i'm not here's the problem we can so easily see the way see a path from point A to point B yeah. and it would just be so, Oh, here, let me do that for you. And so it is. And I think um, the, the older I get, the more I'm so happy to step back, you know, right, what, yeah. It, yeah. An example in my life is um, managing, this is a big piece for a lot of authors, uh, social media, especially pop culture women. Yeah. We are expected to be present on social media channels and in the media, you know, the mass media and produce books and run our families. And, mm -hmm. and, and it was a big piece. And for a while I was such a control freak that I really thought, you know, I need to personally manage every piece of myself online and, and the website and the Facebook and this and that. Right. And it was making me crazy. And, yeah. you know, true freedom came when I said, you know what, there are people who are experts at this. And, right. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I've learned to stay in my lane, which is writing the books and talking about the books and, you know, yes. visiting with readers and things like that. And it was such a, a liberating thing when I finally found people who can help me with the, the pieces that are better managed by people who manage this. So, yeah. um, well, you're, you're producing the content fundamentally and then other people can adorn it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah that's the idea. And it really is, it yeah. is powerful, but it's a big piece of uh, a whole publishing um, enterprise now is that you have yes. to have all your, all your channels lit up. So hopefully yes. we're working on yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Well, you your website is beautiful. Just so oh, you know. thank you, and, and thank so you. It's relaunched for Lost and Found. That was a new design with a new designer, and I hope readers find it very user friendly. I tried yes, to bring all my pet peeves um, uh, with websites to the designer and say, make sure it does this, make sure it does that. So. I hope. Well, whoever you've outsourced it to, that was good because it, it turned out good. beautifully. Um, Very good. So we ask all our authors who are the complicated women that inspire you. And we usually say that they can draw from real life or fiction. Mm -hmm. But having been through your website and your blog, there's a lot of examples on there of women throughout your life, your real life that have inspired you. You mentioned your mother, a third grade teacher, coaches, mm -hmm. friends in graduate school, work colleagues, even fellow moms. So for mm -hmm. you, I'd love to hear what fictional complicated women have inspired you. Oh, I love that question. Anne of Green Gables. Love that. <laughs> Sorry. I was a teacher in a former life. Yeah, yeah. And oh, just um, yeah, yeah, she she won my heart. I often like women who were really Sturdy and would never give up. There was a um, a book. Gosh, I can't remember the t the author's name, but it was called The Tall Woman, and it was about mm. a pioneer woman. And no matter what was thrown at her, you know, she was just sturdy about that. Um, and Frank, I mean, she was not fictional, but um, her optimism, especially mm. when they finally published a more true version of her of her diaries, her groundedness and optimism were are just um unmatched even now you know you can pull out any line that this 
you know, 14 year old girl wrote and it will resonate. And so you're right. You know, I think I gravitate towards the more complicated people. I, I get frustrated by them, you know, um, yeah. Emma Bovary, you know, it's like, geez, right. did you have to go to the train station? Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, one thing that I used to do when I would do, have school papers assigned to me, for the classics is I would rewrite the endings if I didn't like them. And that would be my <laughs> paper. And I did. I found a way for Emma to turn away. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the first time I did it, I was in seventh grade and I rewrote the ending of, of mice and men because I, the oh. most beloved character in the book is Lenny. And we see how Lenny ends up yes. in the book and I was destroyed mm-hmm. by it. And so indeed I, when I was in seventh grade, I said, well, Steinbeck got it wrong. I'm going to rewrite this. And I found a way for him to survive. And then it kind of became a, a quest to to right the wrongs of literary fiction. Maybe that's why I write popular fiction instead of, you know, deeply literary dark fiction, because I, I'm always looking for that glimmer at the end, even if it's just a glimmer. Right. Oh, I love that. Do you have a time for another question? Or I do. Oh, yeah, now? absolutely. Oh, my God. Every minute I talk to you is a minute I don't have to struggle with. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh. oh, my God. Oh, yeah. She this writes is... longhand, Corinne. <laughs> she writes her books longhand. Uh, the mess. I'm horrible. It was oh, wait. <laughs> yes. So do you write just the first draft longhand or I do, do you... Okay. And then I, mean, I and then I used to type it up, which was painful, and now yes. I dictate it, so it's less painful. But then I have to, you know, correct all the the dictation errors. But that's my process. I've tried to get away from it, but it seems to be kind of ingrained in me. Okay, so from our research, which in this case is the highly in depth process of googling you, mm-hmm. we understand that you're a Taurus, and one of yes. the things that we talk about on this podcast a lot is astrology, whether it's popular, whether it's useful, and we generally argue that it is. So I, I read a little bit about Taurus. They can be gentle, but they can be fierce. They don't like to be pushed. They have mm-hmm. strong opinions. They love their home comforts, which I yes, which I found interesting. Sure. Surrounded by pleasing, soothing things like maybe a good meal, a fine glass of wine. So I was wondering, does this? Do you relate to any of this? All of the above. I don't know that. <laughs> that I'm that. You know, I'm gentle with my dogs and my grandkid. Yeah, I guess I'm gentle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe more but, the fierce. Yeah, yeah, the fierce. I, I do the feel ball. an enormous sense of responsibility to my family and friends. I definitely have that caretaking sure. impulse that obviously is, must be gratifying to me on some level because I do it all the time, and and I'm happy to do it. Luckily, I have you know people and animals in my life that are worth all of the effort. So I feel very lucky in my life right now. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I like to explore the descriptions of the different zodiac signs sometimes when I'm creating a character so that because it helps me keep that character consistent and not so contradictory, it makes her more believable, but definitely the Victorian characters can apply to me. I just wish the symbol was a little more attractive than a bull, a yeah. raisin bull. <laughs> I guess we yes. don't get to pick that, do we? No, <laughs> no we, don't. we don't. Someone else did that for us long ago. Well, I have one more question that I'd like to ask because this sure. one's a little personal to me. 
the novel explores grief, um, the grief that comes from losing someone close to you, but even the grief that comes from watching a loved one age and struggle mm-hmm. to hold on to the person that they once were. Uh, in the novel, Natalie's beloved grandfather is struggling with dementia, which attacks his mind and memories. And I mm-hmm. lost my own father to ALS, which attacks the body, but leaves oh your mental God. faculties intact. Uh, yes. Bless your um, heart. So no, yeah, well, no one way is better or worse, but it just reminded me that while grief can feel so personal and vulnerable, it's it's also so universal. So why did you want to explore that in the Lost and Found Bookshop? Oh, I'm right there with you. Uh, my very beloved dad um, passed away with Parkinson's a few years mm-hmm. ago. Um, he and my mom were married for 63 years. And my mom, <sighs> she's 80, 89 now and um, has early dementia. And I can see the signs. And so, and she lives with me. So, um, oh, wow. you know, she's right down the hall. And so obviously was on my mind a lot. And I was doing a lot of reading because there's a book for everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was reading a book called Advice to Future Corpses and the Ones Who Love Them or something like that. It's a cool title yeah, by Sally Tisdale. She's an RN. And it's just about end of life issues like that and how, and and it's exactly what you said. None of us are ever going to get out of this without having to confront loss and grief. And so it's not that we can escape it or avoid it, you know, which Natalie certainly tried to do in the early part of her life by just being so risk-free, but it's how we embody that and embrace it and make it a part of who we are and to take the scars and to become better for it. And so I've I had a lot of thoughts about that. And so the conversations that Natalie has with her grandpa and about him and the feelings and the emotions that she's dealing with come from a really genuine place in my life, um, even though it's this different kind of relationship. So I really, that, that was something that I was pretty passionate about in the book, but I didn't want to hit you over the head with a hammer with it. I wanted to make it a darn good read and entertaining. But on the other hand, I did want to touch on the very tender parts of our lives that have to deal with these things, whether we want to or not. So yeah, that one was a real personal part of the book for me. And thanks for asking about that. Yeah. Well, it really resonated with me too. I have to say my pile, TBR pile has just gotten longer from this (laughs) interview. You recommended so many other great books and we hope everybody reads the Lost and Found Bookshop out July 7th very exciting. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. And readers can always go to my website, susanwiggs.com to get any and all information. So thanks for having me. I really love this. Good. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.